Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. This week, our host, Dr. Lynn Coick, is joined once again by Dr. Mirto Theoharis. Mirto is professor of Hebrew and the Old Testament at the Greek Bible College in Athens, Greece. She studied at Wheaton College and received her PhD at Cambridge University. Mirto is the author of Lexical Dependence and Intertextual Illusion in the Septuagint of the Twelve Prophets. Welcome, Mirto. I am so excited to be talking with you today and from all the way from Athens, right? You're calling from yes, Athens. Yes, that's right. Hello. It's so nice to be here and talk with you, Lynn. Thank you so much. Uh, we're, we are experiencing fall weather here in Chicago. Is it a little bit cooler than the Athens heat of the summer or is your weather kind of nicer now than it was in July uh, and August? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, it depends what you mean by nicer because I really love the heat, so I don't really mind it. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's cooling off. Uh, so we are expecting winter to come at any point, but right now we're still enjoying the fall. It's very nice. Good, good. Well, your winter and Chicago winter, as you know, are very, very different. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> I had a chance. To, yeah, yeah. You and I met when you did your uh, master's at Wheaton mm -hmm. College. So you know Chicago winters. And then you went on to get your PhD at Cambridge, uh, studying the Old Testament. Um, but you, you started life in Cyprus. So tell me a little bit how you made that journey from Cyprus to the academy and now you're a professor and you teach in the old testament so t walk us through a little bit how you made that journey <laughs> yes well um i was born in cyprus and i was always interested i guess in the bible i was always reading a lot and um, this i think was uh, because of my um, orthodox background uh, greek orthodox background so i was born in a greek orthodox family uh, my mother all was evangelical though so i was in between the two churches and trying to kind of determine my identity and my faith so this led me even more to the study of the scriptures, to discover who I am, how I'm supposed to live, what, what do I believe? So I always had so many questions, and especially for my youth leaders and my pastors, they were uh, kind of getting tired of my questions. So they were recommending that I continue to study theology, go to a Bible college or something. And I realized that the only Bible college that was available was in Athens, Greece. Uh, we didn't have one in Cyprus. So that's when I decided to leave my job. I used to work in a bank uh, and I was in the finance and economics and all these areas. So I left all that and I decided to study theology at the Greek Bible College in Athens. Um, it was very, very strange for me because no one could understand what I was going to do with it. Um, the people who studied this were usually the pastors, people who would become pastors. So when a woman decides to give up everything and go and study theology, it's like a suicide for the women, especially if it's an evangelical in a Greek Orthodox country, there's no way that you're going to get a job with this degree. 
you cannot teach uh, religion, theology in the schools because you're evangelical. So I, there was no job for me. And I couldn't, of course, be a pastor. Um, at the same time, I had not experienced a woman being a professor of theology or teaching theology. All my professors were men. So I didn't know what it would look like, what life would look like after this degree. But I didn't really care at that point because uh, I, just, I was just thirsty for theology. I was just thirsty for the word to understand it. And so I started studying and one year led to another and another and I just couldn't get enough. Um, so I continued until um, in my fourth year of my studies, I met a professor from Wheaton College who visited our college here in Athens. It was uh, Dr. Greg Beale, actually. And he spoke to me about the program in, in Wheaton and he encouraged me to apply. Uh, of course, I laughed and said, uh, there's no way I will get accepted at Wheaton and all of that. But just for fun, I decided to apply. And thankfully, it all worked out. And I continued my, study, my studies at uh, Wheaton College and Biblical Exegesis. And that's where we met. Uh, you opened the world of Judaism to me, which was so exciting. Um, and then the next step, the question about the next step was in the horizon. And again, um, I wanted to do more. I was still hungry for the word and hungry to get into more research. And um, my question again came that what will I do with this degree? Uh, why should I keep on studying? Why should I even go for a PhD? So I had the crazy idea of sending a letter to the board of my college here in Athens and telling them of this desire and seeing what do they advise me to do. So I just said to them, I am the fruit of your labor. I have uh, soaked in all this knowledge that you've given me and I want to use it for the ministry. So I want to come back and work alongside of you. But I know that no one else, no other woman has done this before. So I want to see if this is something you approve of, or is this something, am I, am I on the right track? And they had a meeting, the board of the college, and they unanimously told me, yes, we want you back here. We want you to come and help us. And we have one request. So I said, what is that? And the request was that I specialize in the Old Testament because they didn't have an Old Testament scholar at the time who was working at the Bible college. Most of them were uh, in the New Testament. So, okay, that explains, that explains why you turn from the study of the New Testament <laughs> to the Old Testament. There's a pragmatism yes. here. Okay, I, I forgive This you. is the I partial role, uh, uh, the partial reason though, because for me, the Old Testament is more exotic. Uh, growing up in Greece, in the Greek language, and in the New Testament, and uh, the, the Christian context here in the tradition is, is very ancient, so it was not exotic to me at all. But when I went into the Old Testament world, this was totally something new, something I had not experienced before. The language was very different. So it intrigued me a bit more. I apologize to our New Testament that's scholars. Fair. No, 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 that's fair. I get that. Yeah. that, that that's, that's fair. I've always envied 
native Greek speakers as they engage in the New Testament, because from my vantage point, there is that exotic, I love that word exotic that you, you mentioned. Yeah, to me, it, it retains an exotic kind mm. of atmosphere because it is a new language, you know, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's actually new compared to the Greek culture, which goes back thousands of years before that. Yes, so yes, and- <laughs> I can see how the Old mm-hmm. Testament uh, would, would be very attractive. Yeah, that way. definitely. Yeah. So you went and got your, you got your Old Testament um, PhD then at Cambridge. Yes, that's right. And and the funny part is that uh, I ended up going into uh, a specialization in the Septuagint. So that brought brought me back into the Greek, <laughs> and the uh, the combination, I guess, of the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, and this also had to do a lot with my context, the Greek Orthodox context, because. The Septuagint is the ecclesiastical text of uh, the church in Greece, so I wanted, again, to know as much as possible about it. And I have to thank another professor from Wheaton uh, here, Dr. Karen Jobes, for uh, inspiring me into this direction, too. So, yeah. She's an amazing scholar. She really, yep, absolutely. Now, when you, you, you finish the degree, you're back now in Athens, and you are spending a lot of time and devotion to uh, refugees and uh, even more specifically victims of sex trafficking. How did, how did that concern develop mm-hmm. for you? Uh, yes, this started when I was uh, a student in my bachelor years. Uh, we are required by the college to have a ministry outside the college. Uh, we are required to spend uh, a certain amount of hours each semester serving. And I had a friend who was one of the founders of the Neazoi New Life Ministry in, um, in Athens that helps uh, people in prostitution and uh, um, victims, survivors of uh, sex trafficking. She was always encouraging me to join this ministry. And of course, I was very scared of that ministry. I knew nothing about it. Um, I, was, I never saw a woman in prostitution before. So it was, I was very hesitant. I always told her, no, my, my ministry, my heart, my gifts are in the teaching area. So I, I love what you do. I encourage you, but it's not for me. Uh, but... Uh, at uh, some point, one summer, uh, she was uh, showing hospitality to me. She let me stay at her house for some time. And uh, she kept doing this ministry. And one night she said, why don't you come with me just to see it? You don't have to join or anything. Just come and see how it's like. So I went with her in the red light district and that was it. The minute I laid my eyes on the first woman who was working out in the streets that night, um, I was really terrified. I didn't know how to react, how to be, but my friend took me by the hand and said, let me introduce you to Maria. And so she took me across the street. We went up to Maria and Maria just ran towards me and she hugged me. And she said, wow, Mirto, how are you? Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your family. And I received so much love from this woman that it just broke my heart. And I was never the same again. It just took that one night uh, to go uh, to the streets and I was hooked. So, 
Yeah, that was my experience. Yeah. Yes. And, and yet you, you continue not only in that ministry, but to think uh, and to reflect theologically and biblically on, on that. You, um, you wrote a chapter in a terrific book called John Stott, living radical discipleship in all of life. And I tell you, it, it really, well, I've, I've uh, not quite plagiarized, but I've quoted you uh, on, uh, on your argument here. I want, I want you to talk about it a little bit where you connect your experience there with the idea that everyone is made in the image of God. But then there's this twist that happens in your uh, chapter as you, invite us to think about the image of God that transformed my thinking. Can you walk us through your argument? Yes, thank you. And it's a great honor that you are quoting me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, well, how did it start? Basically, I observed our language, the way we speak about people who are marginalized, the poor, the needy, uh, and the way I noticed that we justified social action or our hospitality um, was that um, this intended recipient of our hospitality, uh, we say that they deserve this action of hospitality uh, because they are the image of God. And I observed that I, I had to use this as an argument for convincing the givers of hospitality uh, convince them to join a ministry or to get active or show hospitality to these people. And then I realized that I assumed that the givers already are the image of God. I was not using any arguments. Uh, they, don't, they did not need to convince me that they also were the image, image of God. It was just assumed. And then I was asking myself, why? Why did I need a reminder for the recipients? Um, and I realized that viewing them as the image of God is questioned or it's clouded and it needed a reminder. But I, I did not need a reminder that the givers are in the image of God. So it was just unquestioned regardless of how they respond to the needy. And this brought to the surface for me this neglected aspect of the Imago Dei. Um, and actually, in that meeting that we had of John Stodd, after Chris Wright heard my talk, he told me that it reminded him of the question of who is my neighbor in the New Testament, because this is the question that concerns us, to locate the people of this status in order for the command, love thy neighbor as yourself, to be applied. But the response of Jesus to this question was to reverse the turns. He, he, uh, he's kind of telling us, do not assume that you are already a neighbor. It's pending to be seen who is the neighbor by who is acting out neighborliness. So it's kind of a parallel twist in that story as well. And I see this in the, in the Old Testament a lot. Uh, with, uh, in, in terms of the Imago Dei. Of course, there's other things that led me to this thinking. Um, for example, our duty to justice towards the animals or towards the non-human creation. And this, uh, this relationship uh, is actually the immediate connection of the Imago Dei and its Genesis context. And um, 
when we use, when we talk about showing justice or hospitality or care for the environment or the, non, the non-human creation, we cannot use this argument that animals are in the image of God, therefore we have to care for them. So it doesn't work. And therefore, if it doesn't work on everything that I have to show justice to, maybe I'm using it wrong, or maybe I'm using it inadequately. Maybe the Imago Dei language should be used for the giver and be a concern whether the giver is acting out the image of God or is the image of God. And of course, this um, uh, I, I'm indebted to many scholars who examined the, the concept of the Imago Dei in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East. Uh, a big name is, is Middleton, uh, who works on this and, and others, of course. But um, the highlight, highlighting the royal meaning of this term Imago Dei and how it's been used in the ancient Near East only for kings and what this meant for the kings, that they are to show justice to uh, their kingdom, to their people, to their subjects, and care for them. Uh, so this was what was implied, if they are to be a proper image of God, a proper representative of God. And how this is then um, democratized by being used for every human being. And I realized that, therefore, this is... Uh, this is what it means to be Imago Dei. This is what it means to be the image of God, that we are, like the kings, we are supposed to be demonstrating justice to those around us if we are regarded as kings by God, uh, kings and queens. So uh, some of these things were the triggers for me to pursue uh, further this concept. And of course, you know, the classical way of researching the image of God was more uh, ontological. Um, this was the big discussion in the church fathers, the early church, what is exactly the image of God? Is it the mind? Is it the heart? Is it? Um, but what this, this did, while it's not wrong, it, it neglected the, the action part, the part of how to demonstrate it and how to act it out. So. This is what I wanted to put back on the table and, and uh, take the attention there. Well, it, it was a fantastic, uh, I'm so glad you did because it was a fantastic way for me to think about how, um, how I am as a giver part of the story or how someone who is giving to me is part of the story rather than isolate as uh, the needy over there, like you just bring the two together. And yeah, that, that was so fantastic. You also, you do some work in Ezekiel mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, I don't know my way around Ezekiel at all, um, but you talk about Ezekiel and specifically a couple of chapters in the middle of the book. I think it's uh, 26 through 28 where Ezekiel chastises Tyre. Now, why would I be interested as a New Testament person in, in that? But you just bring out, you bring to life what Ezekiel is talking about and connect it also with the book of Revelation um, and the creation story, which is, you know, foundational to everything that we do. Um, can you, um, before you dive into the specific argument and, and Ezekiel's chastisement, if you could just set up 
who the prophet is and, and what he's talking about, and then kind of unpack why this section in Ezekiel is so important for us mm. today. Yes, well, I'm not a specialist in Ezekiel either. I mainly work now currently in the book of Deuteronomy, but I was very intrigued again by what Ezekiel is doing in these chapters because he does connect the creation story, uh, the Genesis, the Imago Dei, even though the wording is not there about the Imago Dei, but it's kind of a reinterpretation of the creation and the fall. So I was very interested in this to see how he interprets or reinterprets the fall for us. Um, but yeah, first a few words for Ezekiel. So uh, this is a prophet of the exile. The book is set entirely in Babylon. And this is a time of crisis because already the exiles are there. A small part of the exiles are there. This is before the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and the temple. So there have been some small exiles before 586 BC and Ezekiel is part of this first people, this first exiles who are ready and they're part of the elite of, um, of Jerusalem. So this, this remnant now is, uh, is in Babylon and of course they lost everything they had. They lost their lands and their houses, but the greatest suffering I think that they are going through is the meaning of all this. What is the meaning of their suffering? Why did all this happen? And so he begins to preach to them and give them kind of uh, like a, a, an, an interpretation of why all these things are happening to them. And he has to go back and see what has gone wrong. So a lot of the book of Ezekiel is negative because he's looking at the negative things that have happened among his people that brought them to this state, that brought this destruction on them. And so one of the things that he's examining is uh, why God's judgment fell on them. He looks at the uh, idolatry that was happening among them. And he looks at the oppressions also of the people, um, how um, the, the rich, uh, how wealth has kind of decayed the spirituality of the people and how oppressions were happening in the land of Israel uh, that led to this state. And of course, um, he does not only address this remnant that is in Babylon with him. He's addressing everyone who may be listening. He's addressing people who are back in Jerusalem. They have not been uh, exiled yet. The temple is still standing. And he is also addressing the nations because chapters 25 to 32 is oracles against the nations. And he has something to say about all these powers surrounding Israel. And this is because of the, of the universality of God. He believes that there is one God. It's a universal God. And he has something to say about injustice, not only within the people of Israel, but injustice uh, in other nations as well, who are also accountable to Yahweh. Um, this is something that I'm very interested in because many times we say, you shouldn't care about people outside the church. This is about the church, worry about the church, what we are doing inside the church. But here we see the prophets that they have something to say about people 
and they consider people outside of uh, Yahwism, let's say, that are also accountable to God, and they are also supposed to affect justice. So we should, I think, broaden our understanding of, of justice and, and uh, express our critique about injustice, even with other nations who have different religions, or it just gives us a license to do that, I guess. So this is, yeah, this is Ezekiel. He is trying to examine why these things have happened and what led to our fall, because this is a huge, it's, it's of a cosmic importance. It's a fall of a cosmic importance, the fall of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Israel. So he equates it to the fall of humanity, the fall of creation. He doesn't really see a difference in the two. This is how humans fall. And, and you conclude that Ezekiel, and I'm going to mm -hmm. quote you here, makes wealth accumulation through unjust means the primal sin of the fall of humanity. He gives sin an economic value. How, I love that, that framework. Why, why do you feel that it's so important and helpful for us to understand sin also in this in this way, and maybe how it helps us understand who we are, who we are as the Imago Dei. Yes. Um, so the accumulation of wealth from what we observe in, especially chapter 28, that addresses, of course, 26 and 27 address the city of Tyre as a whole, but 28 zooms into the individual leader of Tyre. So in 28, it's called him a prince of Tyre. And what, what is showing us, what Ezekiel is showing us is an insight into the, uh, the self-understanding and the self-interpretation of a person when they accumulate wealth. And it's showing us how the changes that are happening inside of this person, this, the building up of pride, the building up of hubris and independence and autonomy and a sense of power and control over their own lives, over the lives of others, how others become instrumentalized, how they become dehumanized, and they are, they are oppressed for the sake of accumulating more and more. So it just, uh, it's at the root of an independent way of life that is not reliant on God. So accumulating wealth uh, from what um, Ezekiel is showing us is the root of hubris, of pride that led to the fall of this king. Um, so he believed in his own power, he believed in his own beauty, in his own autonomy, basically. And this is something I observe in other texts as well, not only in Ezekiel. For example, in Deuteronomy 8, we see God, uh, we see Moses addressing the Israelites, and there we don't even have accumulation of wealth that's coming from unjust means. We have the wealth that God himself is giving to the Israelites as a gift, the gift of the land. But he's warning them that when you enter the land and you have all this fertility, be very careful that you will not think that your own hand and your own strength helped you accumulate all of this and you become prideful and you don't need God anymore. So it's showing us that wealth accumulation by itself, not even 
the roots of it, like whether it's, it's acquired by unjust means or just means, the accumulation itself does something to the self-perception of the individual. It creates some kind of autonomy and lack of dependence from God. So this is what uh, Ezekiel is diagnosing here in the King of Tyre. It's a very psychoanalytical portrait. It's incredible. Uh, but you can see it in many other texts uh, happening. And, and also, the problem is not just how I interpret myself. It's also how I interpret others who do not have the same amount of wealth as I do. So um, if one thinks that it's my own hands that help me acquire all this, and so I'm so important, I'm so wise, then the person who doesn't have this is necessarily lazy or is necessarily unwise or sinful or you name it. Uh, so it's not, the problem is not only my self-interpretation, but uh, an entire interpretation of the world, of my neighbor, etc., etc. So it is very much at the root of my relationship with God and my relationship with other humans. Yeah, that is so, that is so powerful. Thank you so much for walking us through these key uh, passages in the Old Testament that I, I don't think get enough attention, certainly not in the way that you've uh, unpacked it for us. Um, as, as we finish up, I want to go back to Maria uh, and, and that story that you told at the, at the beginning of our conversation and, and ask you, what would you say to our listeners who want to engage in their communities when they see that kind of injustice? What, what are some things you would recommend and how, um, maybe what are some things we can avoid as we try to step into the space that you've so beautifully shared with us? Yes, yeah, so um, all this reflection on the image of God um, and shifting the conversation back to us, it, uh, it shifts the worry. I don't know if worry is a good word, but the, let's say the focus is on whether I am the image of God and not whether the other person deserves my ministry or whether they are the image of God or anything like that. So uh, it, it also frees us from uh, a ministry based on success number uh, numbers and this kind of uh, these kinds of evaluations of ministry because if my concern is whether I am the image of God and I am living as the image of God, I cannot help but live out uh, justice and hospitality and care towards the others. I cannot help but do that regardless of the result and regardless of the deservedness of the other person. It's about me, it's about who I am. Uh, this is very liberating, especially as I see in our ministry against human trafficking. This is, this is a huge beast in the world today. We have 45 million trafficked people and it's continually increasing. If you go into ministry with a measurability concern of results, you will die and you will, you will give up before you start. But if you go into this ministry because this is who you are, regardless of the result, you are there because you're mirroring 
Christ. You're mirroring what he is doing in the world and what he is bringing eschatologically in this world. And it's this mirroring that should be your concern, uh, how to be the image of God yourself. And so this is... Um, this is what I would, uh, I would encourage people. The image of God is already there. In, uh, it's never questioned in the poor and the marginalized. And this is also Matthew 25. We go there to meet Jesus. And we meet Jesus every time we encounter these people. He is completely identified with them. It's not a question to concern us whether they deserve it, whether they're the image of God. We meet Jesus himself in them. So our concern should be whether we are mirroring him. So this is what I, I would say to people, to just stop the concern with the measurability and the numbers and the outcomes and just be there because you cannot help but be who you are, being the image of God. Oh, that's, that is so powerful. Oh, wow. Thank, oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Merto, for that great word for us. And... Um, yeah, that, and I just appreciate that. And I thank you for thank you. all the hard work you've done in exegeting scripture and then living it out. Thank so, you so much. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Alabaster Jar podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Mirto Theoharis, you can find more about her work in today's episode description. We release new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe, share, and come back here next Tuesday for another brand new conversation on the Alabaster Jar podcast.